Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, good evening, and let me extend my welcome as well. We're delighted to have all of you here on the campus of Southeastern, both uh, old uh, and returning students as well as new students. And thank you for being here tonight in such a wonderful turnout. As Mark shared, we're going to work through the letter of 2 Peter during our chapel services this semester. So I'll begin tonight, and at the end, Scott Pace will bring the final message from chapter 3. So find your Bible and whatever uh, means you have it, and join me in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, destined for glory. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and studying through verse 11. Let me read God's word for us this evening. Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a popular saying that we all intuitively know is not true. The saying, what you don't know can't hurt you. This is not true in how we think or how we live. And as you reflect upon it, you recognize that the dangers are almost unlimited to such a foolish way of looking at life. I'm certain that the Apostle Peter would believe that this is a false statement, and he makes it clear in his second letter. In fact, some form of the word no occurs no less than 15 times in this short three-chapter letter. Indeed, Peter would say what you know and don't know matters, and it matters a lot. And as we walk our way through these three chapters, we will discover that Peter says emphatically, you need to know, first, intimately, your Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You need to know who you are in him and what he has called you to be. 
You need to know the power and the authority of the Bible, both in its origin and also in its inspiration. You need to know the danger and the seduction of false teachers and the judgment that awaits them. You need to know the certainty and the promises of our Lord's return. You need to know that you are headed to a new heavens and a new earth. And you need to know that where you are destined forever should impact the way that you live today. The late John Stott was right when he said, the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel is the failure of the lives of God's people. And Christopher Wright, a missiologist and Old Testament scholar, adds, there is no biblical mission without biblical living. And so to live right, we must think right. And as Peter begins this letter, a letter that I believe he personally penned, there's no amanuensis or secretary like Silas or Silvanus, who is noted in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, a letter that he most likely wrote from Rome, Uh, Most likely, he wrote it shortly before his death, around A.D. 65. Peter wants to remind us, and he wants us to know certain things, and there are four of them that I want to address this evening from this opening section. Number one, don't forget who you are in Christ. That's verse one and verse two. Secondly, don't forget what you have from Christ. That's verse three and verse four. Thirdly, Don't forget what you need to do for Christ. That's verses 5 through 9. And finally, in number 4, don't forget where you're headed through Christ, verse 10 and verse 11. So let's walk through these verses together in an expository manner and note these four things that he wants us to know and to never forget. Number 1, don't forget who you are in Christ. Peter begins this book with both a word of humility and a word of authority. Simon Peter, a servant, there is the word of humility, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, there is a word of authority. The word that is translated there, servant, is actually the word doulos. It could have been translated a slave. He understood on the one hand he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also he knew that he was a sent one. And then he adds a remarkable phrase there in verse 1. He says, I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And we receive this faith from or through the righteousness of our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he wants us to understand that we have obtained the uh, Christian Standard Bible uses the word received. We have received a faith of equal standing with the apostles. In other words, all believers at all times and from all nations in all places share as a grace gift the same privileges and the same blessings of salvation. And that salvation and those blessings come from one that he describes amazingly as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not often in the New Testament that Jesus is directly referred to as God, though it does happen in a number of places, and this is one of those places. In fact, in these first 11 verses, it's interesting to note how he refers to our great king. He is God. He is the Savior. 
He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is Jesus. And he wants us to understand that all of us in Christ have an equal standing before God. As the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Peter continues and he says, this gracious saving faith is ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I agree with my friend Tom Schreiner who writes, God's righteousness here does not denote or does not address God's fairness, but rather it is a reference to his saving righteousness. In other words, our ability to stand before God and in his presence depends not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of another, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our God and Savior. I like to remind our students, and I like to remind myself that Christianity is a he-did-it religion, not an I-did-it religion. Jesus did it all, or as the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. And then verse 2 has a very uh, familiar New Testament sound and New Testament ring to it, but it does have a slightly different twist. Those who are in Christ are the recipients both of grace and also of peace. And of course, the order is very important. And here's his argument. As we grow in our knowledge of God here, probably a reference to God the Father, and of our Lord Jesus Christ, these blessings, he says, are multiplied to us in that knowledge. In other words, our intimate, personal knowledge of our great God and Savior causes God's grace, his kindness, and God's peace, his his wholeness. Of course, the Bible speaks of having peace with God, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It speaks of having the peace of God in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. And he says, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we grow more and more and more in an understanding of his grace and also in the blessing of his peace. I love the way that John Piper puts it when reflecting upon these verses. He says, and I quote, knowing God is the means by which his grace and peace become large and powerful in our lives. If you want to enjoy God's peace and be the aroma of his grace in the world, your knowledge of him, it has to grow. Grace is not a mere deposit. It is a power that leads to godliness and eternal life. And where knowledge of the glory and excellence of God languishes, Grace does not flow. The channel from God's infinite reservoir of grace into and through our lives is knowledge of God. And then he gets very practical. We do not study the Bible for its own sake, but because through it comes the knowledge of God, and through that, grace and peace are multiplied in your heart, in your church, and in the world. In other words, grace and peace are multiplied in us for the blessing and the benefit of others. So Peter begins by telling us, don't forget who you are in Christ. But number two, don't forget what you have 
from Christ. Now, there are two very important phrases that drive verse 3 and verse 4. The first is the phrase, his divine power, verse 3. And the second is partakers of the divine nature in verse 4. So whatever he is going to discuss, he wants us to understand it in the context of divine power and divine nature. And his argument is simply this. Both of these possessions belong to those who have obtained that faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, when you and I were saved, when you and I were born again supernaturally, we now have access to the divine power, and we also now participate or are partakers in the divine nature. So let's note, first of all, what he says about the divine power. He says in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By the way, this divine power, is the same divine power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And the text tells us he has granted or given us all that we need for two things. First of all, for life in the context, eternal life. And secondly, for godliness, which he will explain in greater detail in verse 5, 6, and 7. And again, it's all related to growing in our knowledge of him because this divine power is appropriated as we grow in what he calls the knowledge of him who has called us both by his own glory and also by his excellence, a word that may be translated virtue or a word that may be translated goodness. Now, here's his theological points. Number one, only God can make us godly. We cannot do it ourselves. Secondly, God's inward call to salvation is effectual and effective. He'll even drive this home again in verse 10. In other words, God's inward call does its job. Thirdly, when Christ calls us to himself and we diligently pursue him, verse 5, also verse 10, We will see then more and more his glory and also his goodness. In other words, the more we see his greatness, the more we will experience his divine power. That's why, brothers and sisters, we need to continually preach the gospel. Yes, we need to preach the gospel to the lost that they may be saved, but we also need to preach the gospel to ourselves for our sanctification because the same gospel that saves us is also the gospel that sanctifies us. And so he tells us that we have access to the divine power, but also we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Look at verse 4 by which, that is through his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, number one, his precious, and number two, not just his great promises, but his very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, I would say this to begin with. Do not limit what he means by that phrase, very great promises. In my notes, I've written the phrase, think of promises galore from Genesis to Revelation. Furthermore, 
take note of what the end or the goal of these precious and great promises are that you may become partakers, fellowshippers of the divine nature. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying and then what he is saying. He is not talking here about you and I becoming God. There is no talk here of pantheism. That is so far into the Hebrew mind and so far into the biblical revelation. No, he is not saying that we become God, but he is saying that we do become like God. And actually, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 provides a very helpful commentary here because it tells us, and I quote, when we see him, that is Jesus, we shall be like him. And so he's in essence talking about our moral, ethical participation in the very nature of God through the new birth that has been made possible through God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to bolster that argument, just look at what he says at the last part there in verse 4. He adds to it that we have been made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, again, here's his argument. United to Christ by faith, I share in the divine nature and I have access to divine power and the corruption of this world. And I know we all have our own kind of personal uh, idea of what worldliness is, but I always like to let the Bible defined its own terms. And so again, John's helpful to us because in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, he defines for us what worldliness is. It is the desires of the flesh. It is the desires of the eyes. It is having pride in one's possessions. And Peter's argument is very simple. These things that once enslaved me no longer enslave me. These things that once were idols in my life that, that dictated to me how I live, they no longer have power over me. They no longer enslave me. Jesus has set me free from what he calls the power of these corrupting evils. And through participation in the divine nature and access to divine power, I now have the supernatural ability to do what God wants and not what my sinful desires and the world wants me to do. He went to heaven just in this last year, but Warren Wiersbe was always a hero to me as a very faithful Bible expositor for many years, the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. Uh, he wrote the B-series commentaries, and I still use them because as my uh, sweet wife Charlotte reminds me, he talks like a normal person. Uh, he speaks in the language that regular people would understand, and that's always a good word for those of us who live in the world of theological education. Well, here's what Wearsby said. A baby shares the nature of his parents, and a person born of God shares the divine nature of God. Now, listen, nature determines your appetite, and nature also determines your behavior. And what Peter is saying is, I now hunger for God because I share in his nature. And so Peter would say, don't forget what you have from God. You have his divine power and you also have his divine nature. So go now and live like 
him, which leads us to our third observation. Don't forget what you need to do for Christ. Don't forget what you need to do for Christ. Verses 5 through 9 naturally flow right out of verses 3 and 4. In other words, what we do for Jesus is grounded and rooted in what Jesus has already done for us. Now, Peter makes this perfectly clear. Look at the very first phrase of verse 5 there where he says, for this reason. In other words, because of the divine power Christ has granted us, because of his calling to glory and goodness, because of his precious and great promises, because of our participation in the divine nature, in light of all of that, we now make every effort to supplement, the NIV uses the word add, we make every effort to supplement our faith. And what Peter does now is he lays out for us a chain, if you count faith, there are eight of them, a chain of Christ-like qualities. In fact, he actually uses that word qualities in verse 8, again in verse 10, and also in verse 12. And what he is telling us again is that these qualities lived out and made clear in our lives give evidence and confirm, verse 10, our calling and also our election. Now, let me be very clear. We know this, but let me just go back again to basic Christianity 101. These character traits and behaviors do not make you a Christian, but they do give evidence that you are a Christian. In other words, you grow more and more to be who you are in him. And this is just Peter's way of saying what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. You know these verses, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we could probably preach an individual message on these eight qualities. I'm just going to give you the very quick Reader's Digest version. Faith. In this context, he is talking about personal faith and our trust in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Virtue. The, the Christian Standard Bible uses the word goodness. It has the idea of moral excellence and integrity of life. Knowledge. Here in this context, I think he has the idea of practical wisdom. In other words, you are a Proverbs man or woman. Uh, you are a James 3, verses 17 and 18 kind of person. Self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23. The idea of self-discipline. Uh, you have inner power to control your desires and passions, which sets you in opposition to the false teachers who are characterized completely differently in chapter 2 and verse 10. Fifthly, steadfastness or endurance, perseverance. The idea is you hang in there, especially under difficult circumstances. Godliness, which is Tom Schreiner so simply but brilliantly says, it's living a life that looks like God. Or in this context, it's a life that looks like Jesus. 
Number seven, brotherly affection. The word Philadelphia, uh, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. If ever there was a misnamed city, it is that one, but we can talk about that some other time. But brotherly affection. The idea is you have a love for the Christian family that is characterized by kindness and, and gentleness and graciousness and generosity. And then finally, the word love, agape. So many different ways we could describe it, but I like this. We give ourselves away for the good of another. We give ourselves away for the good of another. Some say it is godly passion in action. Or we might even say it this way, it is loving others like Jesus has loved me. Well, Peter then says, when we have these qualities and they are increasing, we never become perfect in them, but we should be growing in them. He says we will be not useless, therefore useful, and we will not be unfruitful, but fruitful. In other words, we will be effective in our faith and alive in our faith, not inactive in our faith. And again, he says this takes place in the context of our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he draws a very striking um, warning. He says, in essence, if one lacks these qualities, and I'll paraphrase it, he is blind being nearsighted. My colleague Jim Shattuck says he is so short-sighted he can not see. In other words, spiritually, he loses sight of the fact that he was cleansed from his former sins. Some people believe that may even be a reference to one's baptism. Now, how can I make this very simple for us all to understand? I think it can be done this way. Perseverance in godliness is proof of our possession of Christ. Perseverance in godliness is proof of our possession of Christ. Or to say it in a fun kind of a way, quoting the great North Carolina evangelist Vance Havner, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Did you all get that? Let me do it again. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You see, none of the good shepherd's sheep will ever be lost. John chapter 10, verses 25 through 30 make that abundantly clear. But the good shepherd's sheep will look like his sheep, and the good shepherd's sheep will always respond to his voice. They don't forget who they were when they were lost, and they don't forget who they are now in him. And so we do not need to forget what we need to do for Christ. And then finally, don't forget where you are headed through Christ, verse 10 and verse 11. Again, John Piper says it well, the confirmation of your election is your progress in sanctification. God predestined all the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, now listen, the reassuring evidence of our election is Christ-likeness. Peter concludes this opening section of his letter with a loving but firm challenge. He says, therefore, brothers, and the idea, of course, is brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to do what? To make, number one, your calling, 
And number two, your election for sure, your election sure, for if you practice these qualities, the qualities of verse 5, through verse 8 or for, through verse 7, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. He says, be the more diligent. Make every effort so that you can confirm your calling and uh, your election. Now, let me again make this very practical. Those who live ungodly lives, who give no evidence of the character traits of verses 5 through 7, they give then no evidence that they belong to Christ. Now, I'm not saying they're lost, although I would certainly uh, have my strong doubts based upon the Word of God. But this much I can say, their avenue of assurance is cut off. Their avenue of assurance is cut off. I don't care if they walk the aisle. I don't care if they've been baptized. I don't care if their name is on a church roll. None of that is the confirming evidence that you belong to Christ. It is a transformed life that is growing more and more to look like Jesus. And so God has done his part, but there is human responsibility in the totality of our salvation. Again, Tom Schreiner says it well. Believers confirm their calling and election by concretely practicing the virtues detailed in verses 5 through 7. And Jim Shattuck says it again perfectly. God's salvation is both elective and effective. We are assured of our salvation as we progressively grow in our likeness to Christ. If that is not happening, the authenticity of the believer's salvation is suspect at best. But thankfully, Peter closes this uh, opening section on a positive note, verse 11. For in this way, that is, as you are demonstrating these qualities, in this way, there will be richly provided, lavishly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, he will talk later about in chapter 3 and verse 13, the new heavens and the new earth, which is our eternal destiny. We are destined for glory. This is one of his great and precious promises. So in other words, growing in Christ's likeness makes us ready for our future and eternal home. I'm destined for glory, so I need to get ready today. And as I do, Peter says, an entrance will be richly or lavishly provided. I like to say it this way. God will be waiting there forth with his arms wide open. And so as I close, I will close with a prayer for us this semester. And it was a prayer that Charles Spurgeon voiced for his own congregation as he was reflecting upon these verses that we have studied tonight. And hardly anyone can say it like Spurgeon, and here's how he put it. It's a prayer. May God grant us this unspeakable blessedness that we shall find our heaven begun already down here below and go from heaven below down here to heaven above up there, scarcely knowing there was any change at all. There have been saints who have found the 
stream of Christ's love running so strongly and carrying them down to the great ocean of eternal life that they have scarcely known where the river and the ocean even met. We are destined for glory. Let's get ready. It will be here for all of us before we know it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful passage in the letter of 2 Peter that reminds us of all that we have in our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, he has paid it all. He has done it all. But in light of what he has done, we now have the joy of working out our salvation so that we begin to look more and more like him. And Father, you have given us both your divine power and your divine nature. So as Paul said, God is working out our salvation in us. And so, Lord, may we become more and more who we are in him, that we will impact a lost world, that we will impact believers around us, showing them again what a wonderful, wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is in his strong and saving name that we pray it this evening. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.